Hello, welcome to today's Startup Equity Matters. Today I have the wonderful Marissa Warren with me from Ali Avia. We're going to be digging into the topic of funding for women startups. I uh, don't think it's a surprise to everyone out there that um, there isn't enough funding for women startups and you know there is momentum behind it, but we need to keep working hard to close that gap. And this podcast is about creating value from equity. So this is one way that we can help create value from equity by helping the discussion and look for solutions around how we can get more funding into women-led startups. It's something that I'm quite passionate about, been doing investing for one year. And Marissa, I don't know if I told you this, but we had 55% women-funded startups in our first little fund um so awesome. really happy to and that was my accident actually like i just must have a, a very balanced bias or i'm not sure exactly how it happened but i was really really glad to see that so yeah so startup equity matters thanks for joining in i think we're up to number seven now and we're i'm really stoked to have marissa on i've known you for for a little while now and you've been a, a great advocate of ours at cake so we're really grateful for that as well welcome marissa Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited as well. So let's go like right back to the beginning, get to know you a little bit. And then of course, we're going to get on to Ali Avia, which is, you know, your wonderful current project. How did you sort of, you know, get started and end up on the trajectory that you're currently on? So my path was not the typical path to VC. In fact, so I've always an entrepreneur by heart. At the age of 10, I started this little group or club. I was the treasurer, I think, and, and we'd go and get, you know, from the trash collection days, people's like discarded junk, like sunglasses and things like that, and then, you know, clean them up and sell them. So <laughs> then to, at the age of 13, I actually got my first part-time job. So still going through high school. And that was actually serving drinks at my grandmother's gallery in Canberra. Legally, I don't think that we, <laughs> we were of age <laughs> to be doing that. I think that just gave me the real bug for earning my own money. And it's interesting. I One weekend I'd earned some money. I spent all my money from the previous week. You know, I went shopping and, and bought a whole lot of clothes and came Monday I needed to buy my bus ticket and I'd, I'd run out of money. And I, I went to my mum, oh, you know, I need money for the bus. And she's like, well, Marissa, you've, you're earning money now. It's your responsibility to pay for things. <laughs> You don't have money, you have to walk to school. So oh. at a young, <laughs> it's the tough love approach. Go, mom. And I tell you what, we're using that with our girls as well. It helps really understand the value of money. And yeah. from that point as well, it's you have to work for it. Right? I love That's that. the yeah, it's just not gonna be handed to you on a silver platter. I do that with my kids as well. They say, oh, can I have this or that? And you say, yeah, well, you've got money in your account. And they're like, oh, no, well, I wouldn't spend it on that. And I'm like, well, there you go. You know? Yeah, that's exactly that's what I want you to think. So I guess entrepreneurial background and a family that taught you, I guess, the value of money. You know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs would have that. And that's that's a tremendous insight. And then so, you know, fast forwarding a little bit into the career phase. So sort of how did you get started? Tell us a little bit about, I guess, the early sort of corporate journey. Sure. So for me as well, when I graduated year 12, and that was in Canberra in Australia, Canberra Girls Grammar School, for me, the thought of going to university was like, you know, going to another institution for four years. I just couldn't do that. So I went, despite my parents' real objections, highly educated people and, you know, same with my sister, 
I went straight into business and I worked at a professional training and development company. And in that first year, so I was what at that, the very politically incorrect term, but sort of at that stage, this was in 97, it was like, the, you know, the Girl Friday. I was doing everything in the office. But at that point is why I got exposure to the IT manager and he was showing me these cool things like email and, you know, websites. I'm like, wow, like, you know, and so then from there, my next job was for Intentra Australia, which was they developed the enterprise resource planning product called MoveX and they also an IBM hardware reseller. So that was my foray into tech. And from there, I just fell in love with tech and have been involved since then through the highs and the lows. I started selling enterprise software in 2001. So probably the hardest market to be selling software and in Australia, because we had four compelling events for companies not to buy software. So they all companies were, you know, in the lead up to 2000 to be GST compliant for Australia, um, to be Y2K compliant. Then we had the dot-com crash and then we had 9-11. But still in that first year of selling software, I made my quota and sold $800,000 of software. So I got the bug. I went on to working at SAP and that's where I, so I moved from this role of enterprise sales, selling multi-global solutions to then building a channel business. So for SAP, they had just acquired Business One, a small Israeli company, and the, and the product was focused for the S&P market. And so SAP, top end of town, they couldn't have their, their reps that would sell these multi-million dollar solutions try and sell this little S&P product. So they went, okay, well, we need to build a channel and in Australia, and then they go, okay, well, we haven't built that before, so we need to hire and people to do that. So I was myself and my counterpart, Vince, that were responsible for building out Australia. So for me, I had Southern Region, which was everything except for New South Wales and Queensland. So the rest of Australia, I was responsible. Wow. That's tough. For building yeah. <laughs> so, we, you know, sometimes I'd be in, you know, Tasmania and then up in Darwin and Western Australia, like all over the place. But it gave great insights into how to build a channel right from the beginning, doing the territory analysis, onboarding partners, managing them, and and in the end sort of, you know, terminating where they didn't work. From there, I went on to Microsoft, and it was different. They already had a channel, but there were two problems that they were trying to address. At that time, we had this thing called the cloud that was coming out. So we had to have partners transition their business models to selling on-premise software to selling cloud solutions. And you needed completely different businesses. You sell it different, you market it different, you support it differently. Quickly, do you help? I think you do. So you do a little bit of, I suppose, support for your portfolio companies in this area. I mean, that's obviously a huge strength of yours, marketing, sales, you know, channel go to market. And, you know, we'll get into this in a minute, but with Aliavia, um, you know, you're focusing on Australian companies expanding to the US. And so I presume that many of them are, are looking for this type of help. You know, are you jumping in and coaching them and helping them with this stuff? Yeah, cool. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because- even I'm going to get you to help me. I'm going to get you to, I'm going to get yeah. you to call separately. <laughs> we won't, re- 
We, won't, we might even record it and share it. No, that sounds like a great skill to have for your portfolio companies that are expanding. And that's why we have where we see when we're leading rounds and we, you know, we want the board position, we don't have any pushback because they can see that, you know, we can add significant value to their business. And in fact, where we haven't led rounds, we've had the fellow investors and the founders want us to take a board seat because, 100%. yes, and <laughs> that focus, how do we grow your revenue? But we found it with SAP partners, Microsoft partners, even Workday when I did that. And then the biggest challenge is around that sales and marketing piece. Of course. You know, so many founders come from a technical background, you know, so there's just so much to learn. And even if you have a marketing background in one country to be able to, you know, then cross an ocean and, and be able to do that in a new market, you know, is a tremendous challenge. Let's talk a little bit about your transition. We all have transitions in our careers. And so now you're, you know, you're founding and growing a new venture. You know, how did you find, you know, coming from working for quite, you know, a lot of the biggest tech companies in the world to now being, I guess, a business owner and a founder and, and getting Alia Veer going? It was interesting. So it was when I was living in New York. So this is the third time I'm living in the US. So I'm dialing in now from Laguna Beach, California. Lucky, very nice. I've been to Orange County a few times now. It's a fantastic part of the world. It is. It is. It's great. And so I, I've been in tech at that stage for almost twenty years. And for me, there was just this. I never had female mentorship support. Like I had awesome males, you know, helping me up the up the ladder. But I never had that female mentorship and I really craved that. And when I'd reach out to females in leadership positions, either they would see me as a competitive threat and wouldn't want to help sometimes pretend to help, which is worse, or the old school, no, I fought my way to get up to the top, limited number of seats at the table for women. You have to do the hard yards yourself. And as I sort of said earlier in this, you know, I am not afraid of hard work. (laughs) You know, I know that it takes hard work, but at the same time, I said, guys are really good at helping each other up the ladder. And for me, so I reached this frustration point in my career where I just went, we should have more women helping each other. I ended up launching Elevaco in New York, which is a a not-for-profit helping women tech founders get investment ready and funded. I launched that in 2015. And that was really the precursor to the fund. So then since then, we've had 175 women through the program that have oh, raised more than congrats. 120 women. Thank oh, you. Wow. Um, Amazing. And had three exits. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. So then parlaying into the fund. So when we, so that was ticking over nicely, always sort of going with that business model because it was a not for profit. How do we realize the value? But how do we, like, it was great at, the, you know, the programming, helping build the confidence in the women and the education piece around what that investment process looks like, connecting them to potential investors, but could never actually then invest in those businesses. So with the pandemic in full swing in 2020 and having seen the funding go backwards since 2019, it just presented a great opportunity for us to go, okay, now we can to launch a venture fund we had so many brilliant businesses coming through Elevaco mm. that all of a sudden couldn't get funding and just dried up overnight for female founders. 
So cool. No, deal flow is so difficult for a venture fund. So I guess that was a, a natural progression, but I guess still a real challenge to go and, and put a fund together. And, you know, it's a huge step. Just quickly before we get on to Ali Avia, you know, we talked about a little bit about the dynamics of women in leadership and sort of the tension and difficulties that brings. And, but there's probably been some women leaders that have inspired you along the way you've looked up to or who have helped you. Have you got a couple of people that you'd like to share? So I will call it. So the great thing is that since I've come into this world now, adventure world, our anchor LP, Carol Schwartz, so she co-founded Scale Investors, a big advocate for backing female fund managers and female founders. She's on the board of the Reserve Bank of Australia, just a sensational woman. But I say, you know, weekly almost, I'm so grateful that we have her and her team backing us in our fund, just tremendous support, providing not just that, that advice and guidance, but there when we need the help, holding us accountable as well, because it's quite often women founders just get, a, oh, yeah, that's a nice idea, and just get the, you know, the nice little like pat on the head type thing of, oh, yeah, that's lovely, and not actually the constructive feedback on how to improve. Yeah. And that's what I really like about Carol. So startups are such a tough space. And people probably nervous to be giving to being franked. And then also you have the additional like toughness of women in startups. And so I suppose having really frank people around you that are happy to have the hard discussions and really do the the learnings and, and iterate and improve. So, so valuable, but I could see how it would be challenging to get those discussions going properly. So yeah, it must be wonderful to have those type of people around you. Um, speaking of people around you, let's get into Ali Avir. I've recently also met your co-founder, um, uh, Kate Vale, legend as well. You're both so, so impressive. And even on every time I meet with you, I'm always impressed at what you've achieved and, you know, how you're going about what you're doing. So please do share, you know, Ali Avia, a little bit of the background, what's going on. I'd love to dig into the portfolio a little bit as well. As an Aussie founder expanding internationally, I, I feel like I have a great connection to what you're um, what you're doing there as well. Absolutely. So just when, um, and just touching on when we did actually so Kate and I, um, so you mentioned Kate, she is, so my co-founder, she's the ex-managing director and first employee for both Google and Spotify Australia. Whoa. Yeah, so when, when they hired her for Google, like literally for the first few weeks, she was answering her home phone as like, Google Australia. How do you do that? Like, how does that happen? Yeah. I must ask her. We're catching up next week. I'm definitely going to try and find out more about this. <laughs> I'll do. And she has a funny story around when, you know, when they Google acquired the maps business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When they acquired the maps business, uh, she gets this knock on the door one day and, you know, these guys and they've gone, hi, you know, we're such and such. And, and she's like, who are you? And she's like, you've acquired <laughs> us. She's like, right, okay. <laughs> so, you know, the decision that sort of made it at HQ and yeah. So, but she grew that Google business from like zero, her as first employee to half a billion dollars for wow. IPO. Spotify helped grow that from again, zero to the number one streaming service in the, in the region as well. Uh, so we get to your point around the, you know, the value that we provide our portfolio companies that's really being able to scale those hyper growth tech companies and drill into her superpowers around the HR challenges that go along with that journey as well. You'd be hard pressed to find better CVs as partners in funds anywhere. That's really wonderful. 
You say that, but the interesting thing, so for us, I mean, we've touched on the challenges that female founders face. So female fund managers, it's probably about 100 times harder to raise a fund. And especially Kate and I, we do not have the typical VC background at all. And when I came to her with the idea, I said, I've got this idea, she goes, it's brilliant, I'm in. And then her next question was, I haven't started, I don't know what to do. And I said, I don't know what to do either. But I think from the research that I've done, we need to talk to some lawyers and get the structure right. So we surrounded ourselves with brilliant advisors to talk to them about and experience people who'd raised multiple funds to talk about what the approach that they took. And then we just, you know, decided on our own investment thesis and what journey we would take. But it has, I mean, we would have call after call after call for the first three months for us fundraising, like three months solid, we had no's. And we just went, what? And we went back to our advisors and we said, okay, you know, we think we've got pretty good track records from a tech operator perspective. And, you know, we had to adjust our strategy. And we, since we went back and adjusted our strategy very quickly, we raised just under a couple of, you know, just under 2 million in a, in a couple of months. Congrats. Thank you. But it still is much more of a process so much more for our fund managers. It sounds so much more difficult. Like a, that, yeah, that's that's an incredible insight. Mm. And that's why we're grateful. Now we have twenty-seven investors. We've raised just under ten million. But the likes of Carol, of Robin Denham, and her family office, with Victor, headed by Victoria Denham and Matt, and then we have EJ from Morgan Stanley. We have. The Tatarang family office, which is the family office for Nicola and Andrew Forrest. We have Don Kim's family office. And then we have a bunch in the US as well. So it's I think we've been able to attract some some really great investors that are very passionate about changing this funding gap for female founders and female fund managers for that manager. Well, I'm very hopeful that from this podcast we can help in some way. If anybody wants to Get in touch with Marissa, I think LinkedIn, yeah, or hit me up. I can connect you. We're huge advocates for, you know, for this. And hopefully we can help you learn a little bit about Marissa and Ali Avira and the space today and and help bring more and more investment in. And so what sort of portfolio companies are you investing in? What's the thesis? Why is it a great thesis? You know, how's it all going? So at the, at the top, so it's an investment mandate to invest in female founders. So there must be at least one female founder on the cap table with a significant equity position and a C-level role. So that for us is a non-negotiable. Then we're investing across both the US and Australia. And as you highlighted before, we're particularly interested in those Aussie businesses that want to expand to the US 12 to 18 months post our investment because we can help them. We're sort of that bridge to the US. We can help them get ready to launch into the US um, with our networks, our our investors, but we understand what it's like selling in the different markets. And selling in New York is very different to selling in LA or Laguna Beach, et cetera. And also for those businesses, there's a natural nice valuation uplift. The Aussie market is still probably 30 to 40% cheaper, like from a valuation perspective than US. So that's why we we as well like that because that then obviously represents a good return for our investors with that expansion. 
we invest, so pre-Series A, so we'll do pre-seed, pre-product and pre-revenue. So two of our nine companies that we invested in, we invested in the at the pre, pre-seed stage. We do seed, probably the bulk is at the seed at the moment, and then seed plus. So seed plus is fairly new over the last couple of years, and that's really where the, they don't have the metrics to for a Series A, but they're passed through the seed. Especially challenging for Australian companies because you've got to get to the US ARR metrics to get the A round done as well. So that's we sort of saw that C plus coming in that space sometimes just across that currency gap too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then we do, so we're enterprise and consumer software businesses. So given Kate's and I background around the value that we can provide companies. Awesome. No, I absolutely love that. You know, I think in Australia, valuations are a little lower and there's less investors as well, which I think is an advantage. So I think the ability to be able to access really great companies, I believe there's an advantage on the investor side there. Maybe this year in the US, it's normalized a little bit, but certainly going back a few years, you know, it was really hard to have the time to do the DD in the US, you know, to be able to get the type of companies that you really wanted. But in Australia, I think even investors do get that time. So that's another another advantage that I would sort of see. We were talking earlier, and I know you probably don't want to call out one company over another because I'm sure you love them all equally, but we were talking about how to. So maybe we can just chat a little bit about them as an example, a company, and it'd be great to learn a little bit more about them specifically, but also you know their, their US expansion. Just super interesting to hear a portfolio example. Yeah, how to, how to is a good one because it did actually come through our pre-accelerator, Elevarco. So we've been, I've worked with them since 2019. So we've been able to get some good exposure to the business. And the part that, you know, going in and investing and why we invested initially with them was they had this 20-year-old consulting business where they were selling, like they were building digital learning for their clients and it would take e-learning for their clients and it would take months to build this and then deploy it. And they saw that the future was going to be SaaS driven where companies could create their own digital learning content and roll it out to their users. So they disrupted their own business model um, with this product and actually their MVP was actually paid for by the customer that they could then use as they like so really like the commercial mouse every founder wants that (laughs) yes exactly and really deep domain expertise in that area since then they have a couple of hundred customers in australia and have expanded to the us but they actually launched the SaaS product in february of 2020 so then we went into lockdown, <laughs> but they're really impressive growth over that period. And in fact, in the US, they have over 20 customers now and they have displaced Articulate a couple of times, which is their largest competitor. Articulate had a, get this, it's a Series A billion dollar funding round wow. in 21. Wasn't like, 21 crazy. And they're coming out with, new products as well they'll be coming out sort of later this year but they've been a great success story in terms of what you can do from australia initially you know and they have over 20 customers now in the us what you can do from australia to initially like test out the market to understand if there's real appetite in the us and and refine that 
before then making that big boots on the ground here in the US. So they've done that very well. Amazing. Quickly, and I don't know exactly how much you want to share, but the US is such a massive market and you know we're going through this ourselves. And so one question I thought might be helpful for people is kind of how they managed to sort of segment the market. Was it by region, by customer, by industry? And you know, what was the thought process? If you could share something around that, I think it might be interesting for people to just hear some experience on, you know, how they went about thinking about the US and segmenting it. So the first thing, um, so looking at your ideal customer profile, because your ideal customer profile in Australia may be different to that in the US. So it's understanding first in Australia what works and then looking at that in the US. But the next thing is the geographical focus. You want to focus like ideally on <laughs> like one market. I mean, even if you just focus on California, for example, I mean, that's how many times bigger than Australia. Yeah. And it's narrowing in from a geographic, like focusing on, on one or two tops geographies. And then starting to to see with with your ideal customer profile and vertical. We, I'm a big supporter of the sort of like the vertical approach as well, and understanding. Okay, so within that market, are we focusing on health tech companies or you know etc. But what do they look like? Are they small, mid sized large, and just so refining down, and then start you know, testing with the market messaging and seeing what works and converts. And it is a, you know, a test and iterate sort of type process, but you need to be super focused. And it's also Americanizing the website, mm. um, Americanizing it with, you know, changing the S's to the Z's and very much having that product-led growth type. So strategy with, you know, the price list and ultimately where you can, you know, some of our startups moving towards having both that self-service, you know, put a credit card in, buy the product yourself type model, but then and still have then the enterprise sales. Yes, okay, so, you know, you actually have to have somebody take you through the process and sell. Like that's where we're trying to get all of our SaaS businesses to because initially it's a, you know, founder-led sales they're doing that themselves, they're selling, then as they start getting on the team, it's still an enterprise sale. And that's still obviously a valuable part of the business because the deals can be significantly bigger. But then how do you capture in that sort of lower part of the market than just the self-service that just ticks over and just requires more marketing efforts to, to help generate the sales versus sales efforts? No, extremely important stuff. I was fortunate enough to go through the Austrade landing pad up out of San Francisco and you're constantly evolving and learning as a founder. And, you know, they ran a really nice program for us. We talked through a lot of that and we've been through a lot of that. So it's wonderful to hear you having that knowledge as an investor and advocate all women-led founders, you know, hit Marissa and Kate up and sort of tell them what you're doing. And I think it'd be really worthwhile, especially if you're looking to expand to the US. So um, all right, let's shift up into the, I guess, the core topic today. We, we're really here to, I guess, highlight the challenges. Let's not gloss over them. Like, there really are challenges. We also want to try and talk about the progress. We want to try and talk about, like, the really positive attributes of women-led startups as well. So, I suppose, on the little bit of the positive side first, you know, the sector is growing. There, there's certainly more and more, you know, women-led VCs and women-led 
you know, companies. Unfortunately, the funding into women-led startups has actually gone down a little bit in the last few years, which is, you know, which is really tough. But I do feel like there's momentum, certainly anecdotally around the industry. You know, I, I feel like there's more and more things happening. Obviously, yourselves, you're, you're making great progress. Um, there's, you know, Australian industry I'm more familiar with. This is powerhouse women everywhere. It certainly doesn't feel like, you know, there's a lack of talent, <laughs> you know, by any stretch. Some organizations we found doing research, you know, there's Women's Startup Lab, Female Founders Alliance, there's Women's Venture Capital uh, Fund, and, and I'm sure there's many more. But at the end of the day, look, the data is is still, you know, tough. I think 2021, PitchBook said 2.3% of venture capital globally went to women-led. And I, I know you've got on your website there, it's only 1.9 in Australia in 2023, 1.9%. So, you know, nowhere near where we need it to be. How are we going to continue to grow? How are we going to continue to improve, empower, you know, women VCs as well as women-led startups? Marissa, I know you got some great insights into this and some great ideas. So let's let's get into that. Yeah, and something that I'm very passionate about and fired up as well, of course. Yeah. So to the point, yeah, in 2019, I mean, we reached an all-time high of 2.9% of venture funding in, in the US going to female founders. To put that in perspective, we worked, raised $5 billion that year, and that was more than all of the female founders in the US raised. And I often say, well, look what happened Crazy. to WeWork. Yeah. So he's been refunded too for his new venture, like tremendous oh, yeah. napkin, it looks like. So, yeah. Yeah. And again, there's been so much outcry from the industry. Like, how could Andreessen Horowitz do that? Like, and the, uh, it's, and not be actively, you know, backing some of the female founders. So that's no. another, another story. But I think on the positive. So, how do we move this forward and actually get more female founders funded? And I look at this as, you know, as investors, we have the power to change the world through what we invest in. So first of all, so let's make our dollars count by investing in gender diverse teams that are going to have a positive impact on the world. So that's something that I, you know, I think that investors really need to remind themselves of that they are influencing where our world is going. 100%. Yeah. So three key strategies I have that. So the first thing is having that investment mandate to invest in female founders. So for us, you know, I've already talked about that, but particularly we have the, you know, the one female founder with a significant equity position. So we've had ones where we've had three founders, you know, two of a male and one female and female 2% um, equity. Okay. And for us, we just went, guys, no. I mean, it looks like yeah. she's the token female and that is not, it's a deal break for us. I have a really good example and like I, w- I won't name names. So I, I've, I've been really actively working to have more female friends in the industry because I think it's natural that we don't, but it sucks and it puts people at a disadvantage. So I've been speaking to them and then so you'll have two founders and then like a female will come in and more or less do everything while the guys sit back and do nothing. And then they have no equity. Well, they've got like the yeah. ESOP with like 1%. And I'm like, you need to be a founder. You need to be saying, hey, exactly. I want like bulk equity. I don't know exactly how much to say. Like going for thirds, probably a stretch, but could it be 10 or 20%? 
Like it really should be on a day one startup that's like in the first couple of years and hasn't done any major contract and, and you know, they've got women in there like doing the heavy lifting. We have to find a way to get those people bigger stakes of equity. That's critical. I agree. And I'm a big um, supporter of having equal splits as well. Yeah, me too. Somebody can come up with the idea, but so what? If you can't execute the idea, it's worthless. Ideas are so worth I, nothing. I totally agree. <laughs> Unless you've got IP, yeah. build something. But not, that's not the case in these situations normally. It's like I've got an idea and then here you come in, you do all the work. <laughs> one yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. And so for us, that's it. And we give that honest feedback to startups and founders around why we're not investing. And for us, you know, that equity piece is really important. So appreciate that not everyone can have an investment mandate to invest in female founders. And and, and then I wouldn't, you know, expect that. However, so the next strategy then is if they're not going to have that investment mandate, then they need to be quotas at the investment level. And you just you talked about that you've invested in, you know, 55% of your portfolio companies are female. Well, they should have a quota that, you know, at least 50% of what they fund, you know, is female founded. And to take that one step further, their LPs should be holding them accountable to those numbers. So again, the LPs have the power to influence what a venture fund invest in, yeah. in terms of, you know, if they go, we're not going to hold you, if you're not going to, yes, and we won't continue to invest in future funds. We all, what I don't understand is we all have partners, wives, sisters, daughters, whatever, yet we won't advocate for them. This is the thing that always surprises me the most. You know, so many great men and they're really great in so many aspects of their life, but they won't push this a little harder. All the partners of the of the LPs or, or however they position. I think there really really is an opportunity there. Can I open up a quick question? And I've seen some data around this online and I've seen some of the Australian VCs trying to do, you know, doing some research on this. I apologize. I didn't bring the data, but one of the big questions is deal flow versus, you know, deal numbers. So just say, let's use rough numbers. We've got 2% women-funded percentage. Do we have numbers on women-funded deal flow percentage. So like, cause there is like a, I believe there's probably a participation difference as well. Like I'm not trying to cause a fight here. I'm just trying to like dig into that a little bit because, and I know it's not 2%. I know there's a lot of women funded startups, but I'm just, do we have some data on that? If not, I'm going to dig into it and I can provide it afterwards just so we can help people understand that complexity. Yeah, that is a really good point. And I'll, I'll answer that first and then I'll come back with my third point. On yes, of course. Of course. To yeah. approve. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so just on that, so we, I get this comment a lot and I had this from the Alavaco days as well. Oh, are there enough female founders to help and to fund? And I mean, we get on average 10 deals a day coming into our inbox and we have done a very poor job of marketing our fund. So when we, we have our first employee starting next week, which I'm very excited about, Chital, uh, thank you, head of platform, and so we'll, she'll be helping us, you know, ramp up our marketing efforts as well. But, I mean, that's just, uh, you know, we are seeing so many quality deals come in and we just, you know, our fund isn't big enough to, that's, yeah. you know. <laughs> Why we need to raise another one? We need to do more marketing. Well, that's kind of what we're here for. So that's great. We're helping, helping with that. And what was point three? Did we so quotas? So we had um, 
We need, yeah, just mandates to invest in women-led startups. We need quotas. And then what's the third solution? And the third thing is then the diversity clauses in term sheets. Okay. So we do this. We've also seen, so we've um, co-invested with um, Adam Milgram through his family office, who is one of the partners at Giant Leap. And I know that Giant Leap has a diversity clause as well in their term sheets. It's really important. So for us, the diversity clause is that for every position, um, so from the board through to, you know, every employee that they take through the recruitment process, the final shortlist of candidates must have at least one female candidate and or a minority candidate. Mm-hmm. So it's not just saying, so then they need to do work to make sure that what's coming in, you know, at the beginning of the pipeline um, results in, you know, positive at the end of the, the selection process. Yep. I love that. You've made me nervous because, you know, it's like full disclosure and cake, you know, we're not as diverse as we would like to be, but we're doing our best and and we are really trying and it's a journey we're all going on to learn and, and we're constantly implementing more and more, you know, strategies and policies and processes as we grow to have greater diversity. Thankfully, now we, we have a woman female we have a female seat level thank goodness and she's been wonderful in helping us learn and recently when we're hiring a cfo we like not to defend ourselves necessarily but i guess just to be transparent like it's i don't want to be saying whether the bees knees at everything either so you know but we we you know worked hard to ensure we had women in the final discussion and and that we gave them every opportunity you know for the role um it was really important to us that we continue to add you know, all types of diversity into the company. And we see it adding tremendous value to us, to our customers, to our community. And it's not just because we have to, it's because we know we have biases and we don't want our biases to be part of our company and our community. And we we know that we have to build processes around that to give us the rich life that we want and, and the rich community that, that we want to have at Cake. So that's sort of just a little bit from our side. I don't know if that's oversharing, but I feel like you no, can't without being honest and, and trying to sort of share where you are on the journey. So coming back to quotas, if, <laughs> just to bring us back, where do you think the quotas should fit? Like, is it, it should it be 50-50? Is there a range? Like, should people be making progress with their quotas? Like, how do you sort of see that? And um, what do you see happening in practice? Where do you see some of the, the best outcomes occurring at the moment? Should be 50-50. Yeah. Like, why shouldn't it? Yeah. It's like... You just have to do better at the way that you're marketing your fund, working with your companies, assessing the companies through your investment process. You know, but the other piece that we haven't touched on is making sure, because I think it's roughly on average like 96% of uh, the investors out there are, are white male, right? So, and you tend to invest in what you know. We have seen some females promoted to partner, particularly in Australia, you know, over the years, which is great. But then again, it's, you know, they're not in that position of power where they can take the investment if there's something they really want to invest into then go and invest. So they don't have that power until you get to sort of the, the GP level. So we need to see, particularly in Australia, more female GPs that have the power to make those investment decisions and into female founder companies. Love it. And then, you know, obviously you're passionate about the benefits that that's going to bring to companies. So let's talk about 
you know, the benefits of having diversity in a company and then having women leadership and women led startups. Yeah, where would you start? I'm sure there's a long list. So let's just start. Well, let's just start. Well, very simply, it makes you more money. Yeah. No so, doubt. like, it's better for everyone. It's better for the employees, the founders. It's better for your investors. It's they simply like you need that. And it goes back to like you need the male and female energies around the, you know, around the table from the top all the way through the organization. And you ultimately deliver better returns. So there's a Harvard study that's on average 35% better return on investment. So it's for us, it's just a, it's a no brainer. Yes, we lead with that, that mission, but then ultimately, you know, you're doing good for society, but then ultimately you, it makes everyone more money. What else do we need? Eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, I'm not doing a good job with my timekeeping because I think we're flying through the time. It's just such an interesting topic and it's something that we both really care about. And, you know, I've really, really enjoyed the discussion as always. Let's do let's do a couple of other things. Let's talk about technology, right? There's so much going on. The pace of change is, is just growing and growing and growing. Obviously, we've got the massive AI you know, boom this year. I'd love to hear from our Aliavia perspective whether there's particular trends that you're you're liking. I guess particularly how are you seeing that the AI space? Yeah. So yeah, like I like I said before as well, I've been in tech since ninety seven. So seen a lot of You've seen you a know, lot of AI? Start- Yeah, well, we over the last couple of years, yeah, a number of our companies do have AI at the core. Yeah, but it's come and gone over the years, hasn't it? Like, you know, it's kind of been a buzzword and it's come and gone. I mean, I think particularly the current boom is a little bit more pronounced than some of the ones we've had before, but... I think it is a major shift. So, like, with the mobile devices coming in, the move to the cloud... I think this is going to be a significant shift for for the tech industry. Mm. You will get left behind if you don't start thinking about how you can use AI, not only in the the product, but then also how you can drive more efficiencies in your business using it. And do you think, like, what's the timeframe for startups? What are you seeing with the portfolio? What's your view on a timeframe? Efficiencies, I think, is like now, and we do probably agree. I mean, you can just use this stuff like immediately. I mean, that's why I was also excited because you know you're sort of asking questions, getting tremendous responses, and we're seeing it at cake. I mean, efficiency advantages are are like now. I'm sure you would agree. What about product changes? I mean, do you do you think that that's a now thing? I'm seeing a lot of announcements coming out about it, but I'm like, they're really using it? How much are they using it? You know, how do you see that side of things? So there's a couple of things. So first of all, on the companies, it's important to say, okay, so if you're using generative AI, you know, whether it's chat GPT or GPT-4, et cetera, that you have that, but then you're building your own IP around that. So it's not easily replicable, you know, by other companies. So there is some value to what you're creating. So investors are particularly interested in that. So yes, how you're using that technology, but then what, what value add are you adding around that? And are customers willing to pay for that? Then the second piece is it is a bit like the Wild West at the moment. We have all of this talk about regulation as well. So it sounds like Europe's probably going to move first before any other sort of like countries, you know, before the US or Australia. So we're watching to see what Europe does 
And then, yeah, because that then could have an impact on product development, but it's still, you shouldn't be waiting until these, you know, these regulation changes come because as we know, it's, it can take a while for government <laughs> to put, to agree and then implement the rules. Um, so it's, it's start experimenting with it and really into your product and seeing how you can do that uh-huh. is our advice to our companies. But we have a number of companies like one well, particular Ophelia that's been using generative AI and particularly ChatGPT, now they're upgrading to four for like the last nine months building that into their products. So Nine months already, wow. It's a wonderful space. I'm the front man founder, so I find it all super confusing. Thankfully, I have a wonderful tech team that are, uh, you know, going hard behind the scenes and um, we're all really grappling with with this thing because it's just going so fast. So thank you for your insight. That's great advice. There's so much more we could talk about and we did have other things planned, but I, I do need to be, you know, conscious of your time. And it's your birthday today. I forgot to mention it earlier, so happy birthday and thanks so much for joining. Thank you. We're very, very grateful. Look, I'm sure everybody's learned a ton. You know, we've covered women-led VC and, you know, starting a women-led VC. That was a wonderful touch point. Obviously, we've talked about, you know, women in startups and some solutions for that. We've talked about, you know, Australian startups expanding to the US. We've talked a bit about AI. Like, I really feel like we've done such a great job or you've done such a great job. You know, I think people have learned a lot today. We like to finish with a segment quite often. We talk about creative, healthy lifestyles at Cake, where we dig into the cultures of our guests and how they're grappling with, you know, the modern work-life balance and trying to create, you know, high-performance teams. We talked a little bit about this before, uh, Marissa, but how do you, you know, you've got a growing team now, you've got a remote team, you were telling me, you know, how are you tackling things to keep everybody pumped and and growing and looking after the portfolio? So, yeah, so the two elements sort of like the, the team and then what I do sort of like at a personal level. So for the team, yeah, as you said, so I'm in Laguna Beach, Kate's in LA. We have our, our new employee, um, Chatal, that starts. She's in Philadelphia. Our venture partner, Alexa, she's in New York. So it's remote, but we're also working across both the US and the Australian time zone. And there are East Coast and West Coast of the US. <laughs> and then we also have, you know, our, you know, one of our investors as well, you know, Nicola and Andrew Boris family office in Perth. So, you know, multiple time zones. So it's very much a remote model flexibility. It's just, you know, I don't care what what hours you do each day when you're working, it's it's outcome based. If you if you achieve what you're supposed to in your, your role, great. We have very open and direct communication as well. Just there's no BS. It's like we don't have time for that. It's like, you know, and that's how we operate as well with our founders. It's, you know, it comes from it probably from my upbringing, the tough love. Um <laughs> you know, we've got that you get to we've got it. that. Yeah. that yeah, yeah. There's, couple, no time you know, for fluff. Like, there's no time for fluff. Yeah, Let's do this. <laughs> we're all on a mission. You know, I want everyone in the in the firm to be successful. I want our founders to be successful. You know, so that's where that and we have very direct conversations and and just, you know, get it out there when things aren't working. So that's the and then we do try and get together as well, at least once every three months to face to face time and just, you know, have drinks and you know just to like bond outside of the the work stuff and then for me personally so I'm up 5 a.m I have two girls 
which is a newish baby as well that's that's Congrats. just turned one. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm up at 5 a.m. so I can work out. My husband takes the sort of the morning shift and you know, I take the evening shift when he works out. Now I need to work out every day. I then also do meditation as well in the in the afternoons. And and I notice when because that's what, you know, the afternoons is when Australia comes on line and sometimes I'll, you know, <laughs> you know, jam my calendar with Australian meetings. And then if I don't have that time for that meditation after a few days, I start to sort of feel it and I go, okay, yeah, I need to start doing it again. But then for me as well, diet is really important and making sure that, you know, it's even to the like making sure that you have, you know, your leafy green vegetables and vegetables or fruit at every single meal and having that good balance of carbs and proteins and, and veggie. Amazing, amazing. Now, we're, we're huge health advocates at, at Cake as well, so it's wonderful to get some insights into into your schedule. You know, I know personally, as I said earlier, if I'm not working out, meditating, um, not getting my sleep, drinking too much, <laughs> you know, it, it really takes the shine off the energy levels. And, you know, we're on a mission. So, yeah, look, thanks for sharing. I'm so glad to hear you have, you know, your own routines. Look, thanks for everything, Marissa. Thanks for everything as a partner. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for just the huge effort. You know, you really must be overcome, overcoming so many challenges, you know, so thanks for digging deep. I think you're on the right path. We're big supporters. And um, thanks for joining everyone. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Jason. Cool. It's been great. See you soon. All right. Bye for now.